Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. One of the perils that believers face in our journey with Jesus is that of compromise. While the devil may not be able to snatch us out of the Lord's hands, he will often try to limit our impact for God by seeking to quench our devotion and passion. Pastor Phil points us to Revelation chapter 2 for more on this. Let's join him now. Yes, so in verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, And did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality." Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Well, the Lord Jesus began by saying to the pastor is the idea of the church in Pergamos. Now, let's just give you a little background about the uh, city of Pergamos. It was about 100 miles north of Ephesus. Smyrna uh, lay in between about halfway. So you had, as I said, it was a circuit. Uh, These churches were really positioned around. This one was about 100 miles from Ephesus. Again, Smyrna was located in between the two. Unlike Ephesus and uh, Smyrna, Pergamos was not a port city. It was about 15 or 18 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. And it didn't really sit on a major trade route either. And yet, Pergamos was considered Asia Minor's greatest city. In fact, the Roman writer Pliny called it, and I'm quoting him, by far the most distinguished city in Asia, or actually Asia Minor is the idea. And one of the reasons for that was because Pergamos was the Roman capital of Asia Minor. But it was also a noted center for culture and education. Pergamos was was an extremely religious city. When I say religious, of course, you realize it's a very pagan city. In fact, there were numerous temples there. There was a temple to Dionysus, Athena, Demeter, Zeus. And there were three temples that were built in the city for the purpose of emperor worship. Because obviously in the Roman Empire, Caesar was worshipped as Lord. And so some of these towns actually had built temples to the various Caesars. In fact, 50 years before Smyrna had won the honor of building the first temple to Tiberius Caesar, Pergamus won the right to build the first temple to worship Caesar Augustus. That was a great honor. And because Rome had 
uh, bestowed on them this honor. It might have even been that they had won uh, the right to become the uh, political seat or the capital of that region. In addition, there was a special center of worship to the god Escalapius. Escalapius, and, and really all of this kind of fits into, you've got to know the background of the city. To understand what Jesus is addressing, the issues that were going on, because it's going to help us to understand the letter that he dictated more fully. But in addition to all these other temples, there was one major special center of worship to the god Escalapius, who was the god of healing and knowledge. This god was represented by a serpent around a pole. Now, does that ring a bell as we read our Old Testament? It takes us back to Numbers 21. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were murmuring and complaining against the Lord and the Lord sent the fiery serpents into the camp of Israel and they began to bite the people. And the people began to to die and they cried out to Moses who cried out to the Lord and God said, well, Moses, take, make a brass serpent on a pole and erect it in the center of the camp of Israel and anyone who was bitten by the serpents, if they look to that serpent on the pole, they'll be healed. Well, of course, the whole thing pointed to Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall basically be healed of sin uh, and have everlasting life. But there was a medical school in this temple, Tesculapius. And um, in fact, strange things went on there. They practiced different kinds of medical techniques. They also employed uh, kinds of, of, of psychology Uh, You'd walk down the corridors and there were holes. If you visit, uh, I've never been there, but they tell me there were holes in the ceilings. And it looked like ventilation shafts at first, but actually they had uh, women uh, speaking in a very sexy tone to people who would walk down the hallways of this uh, kind of a healing center. You're going to get better. You're going to get well, you know, and just trying to use mental, the power of thought to kind of heal people. So they they combined medical technology of the day, psychology, occultism, anything they could do to to bring about healing. And if none of that worked, you'd have to go into the temple of Escalapius, spend the night on the ground there laying there, and they would release non-poisonous serpents. And the idea was that if the snakes would crawl over you and all, then it was you were guaranteed a healing and, you know, it, it was a pretty strange place. One one author said the city was considered the lords of the ancient world. But it was also famous a famous city for its uh, library. This library had a pretty extensive collection of scrolls, about 200,000 of them, of course, all handwritten back then, and uh, it was a pretty well-known university. And they were also famous for manufacturing parchment, which was actually vellum. What is vellum? It's treated animal skins that was used for writing. You know, we talk about, even today, we have an expression. Somebody gets their diploma, uh, they say, hey, I just got my what? My sheepskin. It goes back to that period, okay? Well, Jesus addresses this letter to the church there. And we really don't know anything about the church in Pergamos except that which we read about here in Revelation. Uh, We know that in Acts chapter 16, verses 7 through 8, Paul passed through the region of Mycenae where Pergamos was located. We don't get any indication from Acts 16 that at that time, though, he preached the gospel or founded a church. Most commentators believe that later on when Paul ministered in Ephesus, 
where he spent three years, and we know the gospel went out from Ephesus all over that area. Well, of course, Pergamus was only about 100 miles north of Ephesus, so uh, it could very well have been at that time a church was established. We don't know. We do know this. The church in Pergamus was facing dangers that the church in Smyrna was not facing, and vice versa. In Smyrna, their enemy was outside attacking the church. In Pergamus, the enemy had infiltrated into the church and was being used by the devil to, devil to corrupt within. Now, in some ways, I think I'd rather know my enemy. I think I'd rather have a clear line of demarcation. Hey, we're the good guys on this side, and on that side, that's the enemy. It's a lot harder when the terrors get sown into the church because you don't know who they are. And in fact, Jesus says, don't go on a witch hunt looking for the terrors among the wheat. You just let them be, and at the time of the judgment, my angels will go forth, gather the, the genuine, the wheat into my barns, and the tares will be burned with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is going to purge his church eventually. He knows the true, he knows the false within any church. And the Bible says the clear foundation of, of the Lord stands having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. But this is what you had going on there in this church. And so in verse 12, again we read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now again, this comes out of the vision that John received of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, and this one in particular in verse 16. Every one of these churches begins with an introduction where Jesus introduces himself uh, with some symbolism or imagery that was um, that John saw of him in chapter one in the vision he had. Uh, here, Jesus says, "He who has the sharp two-edged sword." Well, what is the sharp two-edged sword in Scripture? It's the Word of God, right? We all know Hebrews four twelve. Which says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That Greek word for sword is makaira in Hebrews 4.12. A makaira was about a, a foot to a foot and a half long dagger that was worn on the belt of a Roman soldier. It was a precision instrument in the sense that it was used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The word here, though, in Revelation 2, verse 12, for sword, is romphia. A romphia was one of those very long, heavy, broad swords. And it only had one purpose. It was designed to kill, to maim, to destroy. So you get a picture here of Jesus with this sword, and it's a sword of judgment. It's a sword where he is of, of an executioner. In fact, it's the same sword, the same Greek word used in Revelation 19 when John describes Jesus Christ coming in the clouds with all of his saints back to the earth to establish his kingdom. John says, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, Ramphia, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So Jesus is coming back to the earth in judgment. In fact, Pastor John MacArthur in his commentary on Revelation said this, and I quote, It is the first negative introduction of Christ because the church in Pergamos faced imminent danger or judgment. 
Disaster loomed on the horizon for this worldly church. It was and is but a short step from compromising with the world to forsaking God altogether and facing his wrath, end quote. Now, true to the outline of these letters, Jesus, first of all, after his introduction, gives to this church a commendation. He, first of all, in every letter, tries to point out the good. That's just a good way to do it, isn't it? You know, if you, if you got something to say to your spouse, something they're doing that you're not really crazy about, you would be very wise to go up to them and say, Honey, I just want to talk to you for a minute. You know, let me just tell you some of the good things going on here. Before you get out what's not so good. And the Lord gives a commendation first of all. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What does it mean that this church lived at that time where Satan's throne was. Obviously, the Lord is talking about some kind of stronghold of satanic power that was located there in Pergamos. But what kind? What does this mean? How is this church where Satan's throne is? Well, there's different explanations. I'll just throw them out to you quickly. Commentators say, well... Uh, the Lord could have been referring to the fact that this was a pagan center of worship. All the towns in the ancient world were given over to idolatry. But there were some, like Athens, Pergamos. You know, when Paul went to Athens, he was just shocked. I mean, this is a guy that's a seasoned traveler. But when he went to Athens, even he was shocked to see a city wholly given over to idolatry. I mean, there were altars in every corner, up and down every street. Pergamos was kind of like that. And so they say, well, uh, it was a real center of pagan religion. And, of course, you had the, especially the, the temple to Escalapius Soter. Soter is a word in the Greek that means salvation. Escalapius was the serpent god. There was a serpent cult there in Pergamos that looked to the serpent god to be their savior. And so, you know, Satan is likened in the scriptures as the serpent. So that's probably what it's talking about. Maybe. I don't know. There was also a huge throne-like altar to Zeus in Pergamos. I mean, this thing was huge. It was 125 feet long, 125 feet wide, and it was over 50 feet high. And from a distance, it looked like a giant throne to the god Zeus. And so they said, well, that's really what the Lord meant. And that could be too. I don't know. Or some suggest because it was the political center of the Roman government there in the region, and Rome uh, demanded Caesar worship, you know, that that's what the Lord had in mind. Uh, all good uh, interpretations, I don't know, to tell you the truth. I'll share with you, though, one interpretation that I lean to, one that I thought was very interesting. Try to stay with me on this. I think this sheds a lot of light on what's going on in this church and what Jesus is talking about in this letter. The first time we are introduced in Scripture to the concept of a satanic stronghold or the idea of a place where Satan's throne was located is in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. You don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 10 and 11, we're introduced to a man named Nimrod. Nimrod, who was instrumental in having a tower built. We call it the Tower of Babel. Some of your translations say it was a tower that was to reach up into heaven. You say, well, how can they build a tower that will reach up into heaven? No, that's not what's going on. It was a tower that was designed to reach up into the heavens 
a place where they could ascend to worship the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, all the all the gods of the heavens is the idea. Nimrod, whether you know it or not, was the first cult leader that the scriptures introduce us to. It says in chapter 10 that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The Hebrew is actually saying he was a mighty hunter of men's souls in defiance of the Lord. This was a man who was the first organized cult leader on the face of the earth. There might have been others, but he's the one that the scriptures point out first of all. Of course, God confused the languages so they couldn't finish the Tower of Babel. But centuries later, Babel became what? Babylon, which was the place where all false religions got their start. Babylon was the seat of all occult and devil worship. It was a place that we could rightly call Satan's throne. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 17, verse 5, we read, And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And what's going on there, and we'll study this when we get to chapter 17, all false religions eventually coalesce into one world religion at the time of the end. We know that the whole world is moving towards a one world government and a one world religion. And we see in Revelation 17 this final apostate occult false religious system that Jesus Christ is going to eventually judge. But notice it's called Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and all abominations on the face of the earth. That's the Bible's way of saying, the Holy Spirit's way of saying that it all got its start back in Babylon and with the Tower of Babel. Alexander Hislop, in his classic work, The Two Babylons, spends a lot of time documenting how that when Babylon fell to the Medes, the pagan priests of the ancient mystery occult religions that had been centered in Babylon since the time of Nimrod migrated to the north and to the west to Pergamos, where they set up headquarters for the next few centuries. The pagan high priest in Pergamos called himself Pontifex Maximus. And when Rome rose to power, these priests eventually migrated to Rome because they wanted to follow the wealth and the power. Of course, the wealth and power was now centered in Rome. That's where they went. So about 378 A.D., they moved the whole thing over to Rome, where it was then headquartered. Now, to fully understand what Jesus is, is talking about here, what he's referring to in this letter, we have to look at church history. We have to look at church history because... In a symbolic way, the letter to the church in Pergamos represents that period of church history from 313 A.D. to around 600. Remember we said these letters were written to seven real churches in Asia Minor. But in a symbolic way, they also talk about all of church history from the apostolic period to the rapture. This period of church history took place around 313 A.D. to about 600 AD. By the uh, beginning of the 4th century, we know the Roman Empire was in decline. And after uh, the reign of Diocletian, who reigned from 303 to 313, he was the worst of all the emperors in regard to persecuting the Christians. I mean, he was brutal. And he just was unmerciful in his persecution. He was the worst of all the emperors that had persecuted the church. And he reigned till 313 AD. After he stepped down from the throne. There was a power struggle between two men. One was Constantine. The other was Maxentius. 
Now, Constantine's father had prospered when he prayed to the God of the Christians. So Constantine thought, well, why don't I give it a try? So he prays to the God of the Christians. The next day, supposedly, he had a vision. He saw a burning cross in the sky and the words in Latin written next to it, in hoc signo vinces, which means in this sign you will be the victor. He went on to defeat Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge and immediately declared his conversion to Christianity, even though he still worshipped the sun god and never really gave any indication that he was a born-again believer. He assumed headship of the church, taking the title Pontifex Maximus. It was the emperor who was first called the vicar of Christ. You realize that? The emperor who was first called the vicar of Christ, a title inherited by the popes when the Roman Empire disintegrated. Constantine's title of Pontifex Maximus was also taken by the, by the popes, and thus the head of the Roman Catholic Church today is still called Pontifex Maximus or the Roman Pontiff. Now, I don't mean to offend anybody. I'm just giving you church history. And you know what? Hang around. We have something to offend everybody in this study, and we'll make, we'll make no exceptions. So, you know, if you're with me long enough, you'll, you'll all be offended in some way. So Constantine now is in charge. He's the head guy. Takes the title for himself, Pontifex Maximus. He becomes now not only the ruler of the Roman Empire, but also the head of the church. He rescinds all the laws pertaining to the persecution of Christians passed by his predecessor, Diocletian. And he replaces them with something called the Edict of Milan, also known as the Edict of Toleration, which forbid the persecution of Christians. Christianity became the official religion of Rome. He put Christians into high places or into places of high office in the Roman government. He realized that he had to kind of bring pagans and Christians together. So he decided to Christianize paganism and all the pagan practices and holidays. The pagan festival of Saturnalia, which was celebrated at the time of the winter solstice. It was the time when the sun god was said to die, December 21st, the shortest day of the year. The sun god was said to have died. And then starting on the next day, when the days got longer, it said that he was reborn. And so they would celebrate this festival of Saturnalia from December 21st to around the 25th or 26th. They celebrated it with mistletoe, yule logs, and decorated evergreen trees. He made this holiday Christmas, the birth of Christ. Jesus was not born. Uh, in December. Uh, shepherds were still out in the fields watching over their flocks by night. They didn't do that in the wintertime. I think he was born around the Feast of Tabernacles uh, in September, but that's my opinion. Then in the spring, he took the festival to Eshtarte, which was a fertility goddess. Uh, she was celebrated. You know, the spring, things are blooming, you know, new life and so on. Things are becoming fertile again and so on. And so they would celebrate this festival with rabbits and colored, uh, colored eggs. And so Estarte became Easter, the day that the church began to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Pagan temples became churches. Pagan priests became Christian priests. In effect, he married the church with the state. Satan figured, if I can't beat him, I'll what? I'll join him. Donald Gray Barnhouse, in his commentary on Revelation, says this, uh, says concerning this, and I quote, Imagine the whispering that went on around Rome. 
the emperor had become a Christian. Out of the catacombs they came. Instead of being persecuted, they found themselves popular. Like a youngster among heavy drinkers, the church's head was turned by the wine of the world. The priests of the pagan temples had been paid from the purse of the empire. But now Caesar was a Christian, and the priests of Mars and Venus hastened to their baptisms. For the first time in the history of the church, salaries were paid to Christian, uh, to Christian workers. Tradition has it that Constantine's mother was the first to give the money for the erection of a church building. Until this time, the church met in homes and catacombs uh, for the most part during this period. Now, all of a sudden, churches start going up. Before, kitchens and catacombs, humble dwellings or humbler dungeons had echoed with the quiet hymns of the believers whose songs of praise were frequently changed to the shout of the martyr as believers were dragged forth to the arena. All this was over now. The rags of persecution gave way to softer garments, and the church began to enjoy the feel of silk upon its flesh. Thus the Pergamus stage of church history came into being. The church was married to the world. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He set free.